All right, if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, what we're doing on Sunday mornings as a local church is we're walking through the Gospel of Mark together. And so we have made our way to Mark chapter 12, and our text today will be verse 13 through verse 17. Now I'll remind you, we're doing a study at this point in Mark's Gospel of the final week of the life of Jesus. And so every glimpse we get of Christ in these final days is full of glory. This is your Savior. This is how He has revealed Himself to humanity. And so, we believe that unless God uses this time where we look at His Word together, unless He blesses it, we believe that we gather together in vain. That means that supernatural things need to happen in the next few minutes. All across this room, there are people that need to be encouraged. There are people that need to be warned. There are people that need to be reminded of the Gospel. There are people in this room that need to be saved from eternal wrath. Do you see how supernatural this is? This far exceeds the strength and the ability of man. So we're about to bow the knee and we're going to call on God. And I'm going to pray for us. And I'm just pleading with you all across this room that you would ask God to speak today, to speak to you and to speak to your neighbor. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus with a desperate plea, God. We There's nothing good in us, Lord. God, there's nothing in our own strength, God, that can bring forth lasting fruit in our lives or in other people's. And so, God, we pray that You would draw near to Your church today. God, we ask for nearness, Lord, with You. God, we ask for a piercing reality, Lord. Make Your words real to us today. God, remind us of this glorious Gospel. Lord, we pray, God, that there be power in Your house as we gather. Lord Jesus, that there would be praise on our lips towards You, Christ, the one that's bled for us, the one that's made us your own, Lord. God, be worshipped in this place. Be worshipped in your church. As the head of your church, Lord, exalt yourself in this meeting, in this gathering, through your word. God, we pray that you would bless the teaching of your word. Lord, you called it a fire. You called it a hammer. You called it a seed. And we pray, God, that you stand by your word today. Then you would make it do everything that you intend for it to do. Lord, we lean against you. We lean against your word. God, feed your sheep today. Feed your church. Lord, help me to teach your word. Holy Spirit, help me to teach your word with clarity. God, help me in weakness, Lord. Help me, Lord, to speak rightly about you, Lord Jesus. And we pray, God, as a church, that you would help us to hear your words, Lord. God, we pray against the work of Satan in our midst, a work of distraction, a work of coldness, God. We pray that you drive it from us, Lord. And we ask that we would see Jesus rightly today as revealed in Your Word. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, Lord, hear us from heaven. Amen. Amen. Now, as Ryan taught us last week, we're walking through the Gospel of Mark, and we're coming into this thing with a context. So he taught us last week that Jesus just told a parable against His enemies at the beginning of Mark chapter 12. And Jesus basically looked at His enemies in that parable. He told it against them. And He said, You are murderers that have rejected God's Son, and God is going to destroy you. Okay? So these were not soft words that Jesus just spoke to these leaders. And so we enter into this thing. There's tremendous tension building between Jesus and these religious leaders. And so you just imagine, like you walk into somebody's house to have dinner, and the husband and the wife have been having it out for three hours. There's tension in the room. Okay? Sometimes you can feel it. You can cut it with a knife. And so we're coming into this passage today, and there is tension here. These men want to murder Jesus. They hate Him. Okay? This is the context. Now I want to remind you of something beautiful as you read this Gospel, the Gospel accounts. Jesus is sovereign over the amount of tension that develops between Him and these leaders. Right? So I want you to think, this is Tuesday, a Passion Week. We're headed towards Friday. What happens on Friday? Remember, this is Passover. On Friday, all these Jews in Jerusalem, they're going to slaughter all these lambs all over the city. They're going to do this. And you know what this means. This is God's atonement for sin where the death angel passes over the people of God. This is what they remember. But what's happening on this Friday that's not like any other Friday is Jesus, the true Passover lamb, He's going to lay down His life once for all for the sins of the world. And so Jesus knows that He must die, 
But Jesus knows that he can't die until Friday. So he sovereignly orchestrates the perfect amount of tension to develop at just the right moment so they, that they will murder him, not on Tuesday, but on Friday. On Friday, this Christ must die. This is the sovereignty of Jesus. So let's begin to walk. Let's begin to read the Word of God together. Turn in your Bibles, Mark chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 13 through verse 17. And I just want to ask that you would read this with me. Get your eyes on these words. Okay, Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. This is the Word of God. And they sent to Him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Him in His talk. And they came and said to Him, Teacher, we know that You are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For You are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy... He said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. Now, every time we see someone come to silence Jesus in the Gospels, there's something kind of repetitious that, they, that begins to happen. They come to trap Him, and they realize that they're the ones in the trap. And so they come to silence the Christ, and all of a sudden they're the ones in the corner with their mouth shut, marveled at the wisdom of Christ. This happens over and over again. And crowds begin to shout at this Christ. No one ever spoke like this man. That's what they said about Jesus. No one ever spoke like this man. Now Mark 11 and 12 is a chronicle of, these, of Jesus in conflict in the temple with these religious leaders. We talked about this. This all happens on one day. Mark 11 and 12 is all one day in the Scriptures. And so this is like the final blitzkrieg on Jesus in the temple as these leaders, and they come one after the other, after the other, after the other on the same day. And this is how this day ends. This is how this day ends for these religious leaders. In Mark 12, look at verse 34. It says, And after that, no one dared to ask Him any more questions. It always ends like this. It always ends like this. They go after Him and they're the ones shut down. This is because no one ever spoke like the God-man. No one ever spoke like Jesus. His perfect wisdom shuts the mouth of His enemies. This is a display. When you see Him conquer His enemies in this way, He's displaying His infinite wisdom. Okay? Now, 1 Kings 10.5 tells us a story about wisdom. There's a lady named the Queen of Sheba. And she comes to the wisest man in all the earth at the time. And his name is King Solomon. And that verse, 1 Kings 10.5, tells us that Queen Sheba stood before King Solomon and heard his wisdom. That verse says that she stood breathless before Solomon. That what she heard from this man's mouth left her breathless. And so I just want to ask you, how much more... The servants of Jesus, as we behold the wisdom of Jesus, we should stand in holy adoration to this Christ. that He displays His glory to us in His Word. And so we want to be the type disciples that as we read passages like this, they're about Jesus. They tell us truths about our Savior, about our Christ. And so we want to squeeze these like sponges. We want to see all the glory of Jesus in His Word. And we want to bow down in holy adoration and worship this Christ. Okay, so I want to encourage you. This is the wisdom of Jesus. He's the only wise God. He's the only wise God. Then consider this. The same wisdom that you see Jesus display in these conflicts, where they try to trap Him and He ends up trapping them, this is the same wisdom that Jesus displays in, in the life of every single believer. 
Every single believer. I want to encourage you with this. There, there is a lot of suffering that has happened in Grace Community Church in the last six weeks. Be encouraged by this Christ, this all-wise Jesus, the one who no one can trap. He takes this same wisdom that He demonstrates and He works it for you. This is the promise of Romans 8.28. We know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, what kind of wisdom does it take to work all things, the most horrible things in your life, for good? It takes infinite wisdom, unsurpassed wisdom, and this is the wisdom of Jesus at work in your life. When He conquers His enemies in His wisdom, He uses the same wisdom to you. And so we can say this, what anybody in your life means for evil, God can work it for good. God will use it for good. Every single thing in your life. You think about the most painful thing that you're going through right now. Loss of loved ones, sickness, suffering. This promise is true for you. You have a wise Christ. The only wise God. Romans 11.33 says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of Christ. Let us worship Jesus for His wisdom. This is one of His perfections. This is one of Jesus' perfections. And that means He deserves to be praised for His wisdom. For His wisdom. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And so as we walk through this passage, this passage displays the glory of Christ. And I want you to see it. I want you to savor it. This is for the people of God. This is supposed to lead us into worship of Jesus. So I want to walk through this passage point by point. I want to start in verse 13. Look at point number one on your outline. This is the satanic alliance. The satanic alliance. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So here we're introduced to two groups. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, that doesn't mean anything to most of us, but what you need to know is that these people hate each other. They hate each other. They're almost completely opposite groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. So the Pharisees, these are the conservatives. okay? The zealous religious conservatives. They are pro-Israel, and they're all about the law of God. okay? Now contrast this with the Herodians. The Herodians are the secular, worldly Israelites. They're in alliance with King Herod. And King Herod is in alliance with Rome. And what this means is that these, these Israelites, they're pro-Rome. They're pro the law of Caesar. So they absolutely hate each other. They hate each other. But something strange is happening here that these two groups that hate each other, they have joined an alliance against Jesus. This is very strange. You need to think, this is a hundred times more, more conflict between these groups than the Tea Party and the Democrats. Okay? And if you saw, if you saw uh, Barack Obama and John Boehner walking down Pennsylvania Avenue holding hands, you would see it all over the news. Everybody would be wigging out that what happened? What are they doing? They hate each other. And they're together. Here is a hundred times worse than that. And they have joined together because they have a common enemy in Christ. And so you see Christ, they unite together against Him in this assault. This is a satanic alliance. Okay, Everyone in Israel knows that the crowds are following Jesus. And for this reason, these two groups begin to get nervous. They feel threatened by Jesus. Okay, And so the ones that hated each other, they have a common enemy. And so mutual, mutual hatred for Christ binds them together in a murder plot towards Jesus. So this is what you see. This is a very, very, very bad idea. Okay, It is a very, very, very bad idea to try to murder the Son of God. And we're going to see this play out. Okay, There's something about wicked humanity that unites together in opposition to Jesus. It's always been this way. Okay, Listen to Psalm 2. Here's... Here's what I mean. This is the work of Satan and it always has been. From the very beginning, he's opposed the seed of the woman that was coming to crush his head. This is the work of Satan. Psalm 2 says this, verses 1 and 2. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves 
And the rulers take counsel together, listen to this, against the Lord and against His anointed, against His Christ. The kings of the earth set themselves together against the Christ of God. It's always been this way. Okay? So many of you have heard of the website, Together for the Gospel, right? This is a site of really good resources, by the way. But this is more like the website, Together Against the Gospel. They have joined together in opposition to Jesus. Another, another good website is the Gospel Coalition. Go on these and find you know, some really good teachings. But this is the SatanicCoalition.com. They are coming at Him with everything that they have. Okay. Now verse 13 tells us, I want you to see this. When they approach Jesus, verse 13 tells us that their intent was to trap Him. And that Greek word literally means to hunt Him. They wanted to hunt Christ. They are, they are, they are bloodthirsty. Okay? When you go to hunt deer, you don't go to take pictures of deer. Okay? You don't go to put them in deer prison. You go to kill them. Okay? And these men are hunting Jesus. They want to kill Him. They want His blood. They're after Him. They want to hang Jesus in their own words. In His own words. This is why they ask Him this question. So, just in case you're wondering how Jesus is feeling right at this point, when they come and they, they launch this attack at Him. Let me read you one more verse in Psalm 2. Verse 4. This is Jesus. This is, about, this is about how He's feeling on this particular day. And He who sits in the heavens laughs. They join against Christ, against the Lord, and against His anointed, and God is sitting there laughing. This is doomed to fail. It will never work out. It will never work. So next, let's see the satanic trap that they try to fling on Jesus. This is verse 14. <coughs> says, they came and said to Him, Teacher, we know that You are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For You are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So the first thing that they do when they get to Jesus is they start buttering the bread. They start buttering Him up. Okay, this, is, this is false praise. That they're speaking highly of Christ, but there's nothing in their heart in what they mean. Okay? This is called flattery in the Word of God. They're blowing smoke to try to get Him to come out. To try to smoke Jesus out. To confess something that they want Him to confess. Listen to Psalm 5.9. There is no truth in their mouth. They flatter with their tongue. This has no place in the life of the disciple. Flattery, false praise. Speaking high, floaty things that you don't mean. Okay? Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. This is the promise of God. We are called to speak truth from the heart, not false praise. Now, I want you to see that the things that they said about Jesus, they're true. He is the teacher that teaches the way of God in truth. And so they approach Him... And they're willing to say a few things that are true in order to get what they want, in order to get Jesus into the trap. And so I want you to know this about Satan, your enemy. Okay? He is willing, Satan is willing to tell you a few true things in order to take you down, to get you to bite the bait. And here's what I mean. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 14 and 15. Listen to this. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Disciples of Jesus in the room. Just because someone comes to you and says a few things from the Bible that are true, it does not mean that they are servants of Jesus and it does not mean that they have good intentions. You need discernment. We have an enemy that cloaks himself in deceit. And this is what they're doing here. This is what they're doing here. So once we get this flattery out of the way, we get to the real trap. And the trap is in this loaded question that they spring on Jesus. And the question is this. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we not? Now there's some things you need to know about this question because this is loaded. Okay? This is a trap. You're, you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound like much of a trap. Well, it is. Okay, when you understand what's going on around this question. This tax that they reference here was hated in Israel because of what it symbolized. It wasn't a very expensive tax. One denarius, one time a year. Okay, they didn't hate it because 
of why we tend to hate taxes, like ta- taking too much of my money. They hated it for what it symbolized. And here's what it symbolized. The Romans had conquered the people of God. The Romans had conquered Israel. Israel had very specific promises. This was the people of God, the chosen nation, the one who's promised the land, the one who's promised the Christ. Okay, From this people, God was supposed to bless all the nations of the earth. And so this, this, this truth in their minds that, that this pagan empire had conquered God's people, they saw it as a travesty. Okay, And every time they go to this to this tax booth every year, it's just a reminder to them that they have been subjugated. The people of God have been subjugated to this pagan king. Every year, just a reminder of this judgment from God. Now these men that flung this trap on Jesus, they managed to get the two most volatile categories of conversation in the same question. And you've heard this, right? Like, you can talk about anything, just don't talk about religion or politics. Okay, you've heard that? Okay, they got both of those categories in one question. It was a two for one. Okay, so this thing is loaded with tension. And this is, this, this is what Jesus basically, they basically said to, to Jesus. I'm going to paraphrase this. Jesus, should we pay the tax to this invader of God's land? Should we really do that? Jesus, should we really pay the tax to this conqueror of God's people? And then imagine them saying this, or Jesus, are you the true king? Are you the real king that's come to deliver us from these pagan conquerors from, from this Roman Empire? Which one is it, Jesus? Do we pay the tax or are you the true king? Do we not pay it? Okay, and I want you to see this loaded. This is a simple yes or no question. No wiggle room. They try to force Jesus to, to a simple answer. Yes or no. And there's trouble on both sides of this. And I want you to see it. If Jesus simply were to say, yes, pay the tax, what would happen? Jesus will offend the crowds. Jesus will offend the crowds that are following Him. Remember, Jesus, Mark, beginning of Mark chapter 11, He rides His donkey into Jerusalem. Okay? As a fulfillment of prophecy. If you go back into Zechariah 9, that prophecy is a fulfillment of the king, God's king, coming in to rule over an all nations kingdom that'll never end. So when Jesus rides his donkey in, he announces to everybody, I am Israel's king. I am the Zechariah 9 king that's coming to set up the kingdom that will rule over all the nations and never end. And that's what they expected. That's what the Jews were expecting. So the common thought was this. He's here. The king is here. He's come to bring deliverance. There is no way that this king is going to pay tax to the Roman emperor. There ain't a chance. Okay, This was the common thought of the crowds, the followers of Jesus. So if he simply said yes, his enemies thought that he would be discredited, that he would lose popularity and influence, and that his ministry would disappear. Okay? And that he would be shown to be a false king. But if Jesus said, no, don't pay the tax, then Jesus would offend the Romans. And this is why the Herodians are there. Okay? If you look in the Gospels, the main enemy of Jesus is usually the Pharisees. But for this particular trap, they solicit the Herodians. Now, why are they there? Because the Herodians are in partnership with King Herod, who's in partnership with Rome. So the strategy is this, if they can get Jesus to say anything against Rome in the presence of the Herodians, Jesus will be immediately killed. We know from the Gospels that Herod, King Herod is already in Jerusalem. The moment that Jesus were to say, no, don't pay the taxes to Rome, they would report it to King Herod, who would report it to the governor named Pilate, and Jesus would be murdered on the spot. This was the plan, okay? And this is, everybody thought when they asked him this question that Jesus was going to say, don't pay the tax. Because Jesus had claimed himself to be the king. So they're setting him up to kill him, to murder him. This is the murder plot. This seems like a no-win situation when you look at it. It seems like it. Okay, it's kind of like a question, heads I win, tails you lose. Okay, no way out that seems good. It seems like Jesus will either lose his popularity or Jesus will either lose his life. And they probably stayed up all night thinking about this question. How can we trap him? He can't say anything good to get out of this one. But this assault on Jesus is not going to work. And next we're going to see point number three on your outline. Jesus is about to expose 
this satanic plot in verses 15 and 16. Here it is. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Okay? Our text says this about the Christ of the Bible, that he knew their hypocrisy. That he knew their hypocrisy. He sees directly into the hearts of man. They didn't tell him that they were hypocrites. He discerned it. He knew it. This is the perfect wisdom of Jesus. And this is actually a terrifying reality. That Christ, the Christ of Scripture, the real Jesus, He sees every ounce of the hiddenness of your heart. That is a terrifying thing. That you can't hide anything from this Christ. There is no sin in your life. You can't hide it from man. And sometimes you can deceive yourself. But Jesus sees right through it all. The, the hiddenness of your heart is exposed to Christ. And so He exposes these men. He always, He always knows when you're playing games. When you put on the public face and, and the face that, oh, you love Jesus, and then you go and you have no secret life with Christ, no prayer life, no desire for the things of God, you can fool man, but you can never, ever fool Christ. He sees right through it. So he calls these men and he says basically this, you want to test me? I'll teach you a lesson. Bring me a denarius. This is what he says. Taking them to the woodshed. The denarius. This coin was the only acceptable form of payment for this Roman tax. So they had to pay one denarius one time a year and Jesus says, bring it to me. Now this was known as the Roman poll tax. Now his enemies rightly answered that Caesar's likeness and inscription was on this denarius. That was true. We know this from history. And the word for likeness there is actually the Greek word icon. And what that is, this is a vivid description that Caesar's face is imprinted on this coin. This coin is an icon of Caesar. And we also know from history that on Roman denarius were these words, this inscription. Listen to this. Tiberius Caesar, Son of God. Tiberius Caesar, Son of God. Can you imagine why the Jews hated this tax? Okay, That they had to drop this coin once a year in this box that that had Caesar's image on it who claimed to be the Son of God. They hated this tax. Every denarius in Israel was a reminder that this blasphemer named Caesar was Israel's king at the moment. They hated the tax. Should we pay it or should we not? This blaspheming Caesar. Then Jesus uses this opportunity to teach us two duties in verse 17. We're going to break this down for the rest of our time together. Verse 17 says this, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at Him. Okay, Whatever happens in verse 17 causes the crowds to marvel at Christ. And there's a temptation for you to read that and say, you know, pretty good, but I'm not sure why they're marveling. This thing is pregnant, okay? This is pregnant with meaning. There's meaning here, okay? So Jesus answers this question in such a way that demonstrates and displays His perfect wisdom that causes even His enemies to marvel at Him. To marvel at Him. No one ever spoke like Him. So there is a, there is a ton of meaning in these words. And so I want to encourage you, as we go to the, to the end of this time together, let these words of Jesus instruct you. Jesus is about to teach us something. Let them instruct your mind. Jesus basically says this, pay the tax. But He doesn't stop there. They wanted a clear yes or no answer, but Jesus doesn't stop there. An unexpected bomb goes off at the end of His sentence. Pay the tax. And then Jesus says, but give to God what is God's. So His enemies, as soon as He said, pay the tax, render to Caesar, they're like salivating, we got Him, we got Him. And then He finishes the sentence and they're marveled, they're awestruck by what He said. He seemed to be in the trap and he evaded it. And now they're exposed. So let's break this down. The first part of this sentence teaches us our duty to civil government. Our duty to civil government. And the last part of this sentence teaches us our duty to God. The Christian has a duty to the government 
And the Christian has a duty to God. This is what Jesus is teaching us. Now remember, Jesus could have stopped at government, rendered to Caesar, but He goes on to God. He answers more than what they wanted to know. Why? He's got His own agenda. Jesus is not worried about being pigeonholed and answering His enemies' little questions. He goes straight past their questions. He answers it, but He, te- he takes it into His own agenda. And He wants to teach us something. He wants to teach us something from these words. So let's start, point number four, with our duty to the government. Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, from these words, we know that Jesus, this might disappoint some of you, Jesus was not an anarchist. Okay, Jesus wasn't starting an anti-government compound in the middle of Utah. Okay, (laughs) Jesus is not anti-government. Jesus affirms the legitimacy of, of human government. And the word render here actually means pay what you owe. Okay? Jesus is not telling you it'd be really nice if you did this. That would be a grace gift. Okay? Jesus is saying render, pay what you owe. Taxes to the government are not a gift that you give to the government. They're a debt that you must pay to the government. This is Jesus' teaching. And the Bible teaches that civil government has been ordained by God as a common grace to humanity. Say that one more time. I want you to get this. The Bible teaches that civil government has been ordained by God as a common grace to humanity. This means that God instituted government for the good of the human race. Okay, Not for the bad, but for the good. Government is actually intended by God for the good of the human race. Listen to Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Those who resist will incur judgment. This is a good thing that God has set up. Now it is certainly true that the authority that's given to governments, it can be abused, And we see that. We even see that often. And that is perfectly true. But it's also true that almost any form of human government is better than no government at all. Okay? This is the truth that Jesus is teaching us here. Even if the government is led by a Roman blaspheming empire named Caesar. Even in that, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay? This is the teaching of Jesus. We need to be very careful as disciples of this Christ about an anti-government attitude. Almost any human government is better than no government. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. This is our duty. Governments give us roads and sewers and utilities and police and armies and a measure of freedom and we give the government taxes and honor and submission. Okay? This is our duty. Jesus, think about this, Jesus is teaching submission and taxes to the Roman Empire. So, according to Jesus, you should pay taxes to the government that conquers God's people. You should pay taxes to the government that kills God's Christ. You should pay taxes to the government that kills almost every one of His apostles. He had every reason to to lead a rebellion against Rome, but He didn't do it. He said, pay the tax. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Listen to 1 Peter 2.13. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors. This is the teaching of the Scriptures. That we are to be in subjection to civil government. Now there is a limit. There is a limit to our obedience to the government. And the limit is this. If our civil human governments command us to do things that would be in direct disobedience to God... We must do Acts 5.29. What is that? Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than man. So there are limits to our submission to civil government. It ought to be rare. It ought to be a last resort. But the Bible teaches this, that we must obey God rather than man. This is called civil disobedience. And it has a place in the Scriptures. But the emphasis is not on that in this passage. The emphasis is on our duty to the government. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So, Jesus sees no problem paying taxes to Caesar because of this. Jesus knows that there are currently two kingdoms 
in operation right now. There are two kingdoms. One day there's going to be one that will rule over all things forever. But for, the, for this time, the, the time appointed, there's two kingdoms. There's a kingdom on earth. This is the kingdom of man. And there's a kingdom in heaven. This is the kingdom of God. Okay? There are two kingdoms right now. Now remember, Mark's gospel was written to an audience. Almost, almost 100% agreement on this from commentators that the audience of Mark's gospel are Christians in Rome. Okay? Imagine how these words are hitting these Christians in Rome here in their Christ say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. These Christians knew all about living in two kingdoms at the same time. Okay? They have been faithfully paying this tax for over 30 years by the time this gospel was written. So they knew all about being in Rome, but in Christ. You see that? Citizens of two kingdoms at the same time. In Rome, but in Christ. Now we can all relate to this. We are all citizens of an earthly government, and at the same time our true citizenship is in heaven. We are in America, but we are in Christ Jesus. They're, these are the two kingdoms. And we have a duty to both. We have a duty to, to Caesar and we have a duty to God. Okay, Two citizens at the same time. We are God's people now, but we also are citizens of the kingdom of man. Think about the Israelites when they went into Babylonian captivity. This was God's people under the Babylonian ruler. And I want to read you a verse in Jeremiah 29 verse 7. This sums up our duty. I think this sums up our duty pretty well. It says, Jeremiah 29.7 Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find welfare. This is our duty to the civil government. I'm going to read that one more time. You let this hit you. Wherever God sends you on planet earth, do this. He says, Jeremiah 29.7 Seek the welfare of of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. Okay? This is our duty to the government. Jesus teaches us this. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But the main point of this passage has nothing to do with human government. Okay? The main point of this passage is not about taxes or government or Rome. The main point of this passage is that Jesus teaches us that we have a duty to God. That we have a duty to God. This is point number five on your outline. Now there's something powerful that happens. When you put these two statements together, Caesar and God, this becomes the most important political statement in the history of mankind. Why? Because it strips leaders of nations of ultimate authority. And many believe that this is the first reference in human history to limited human government. This statement by Jesus, when He puts God and Caesar in contrast, He strips Caesar of His deity. He says, yes, Caesar does. You do owe Caesar taxes, but you owe all things to this God. Okay? So this is a powerful political statement. Caesar can't claim deity over you. You do have a duty to government, but ultimate allegiance lies to God alone. Okay? Jesus proves His point about Caesar when He says, bring me a denarius. And He says, whose inscription? When He's trying to trap them back. He says, whose inscription is on there? And they say, Caesar's. Okay? So Caesar marks what's His with His image, with His icon. And I want you to see this. In this passage, it's like Jesus sees another icon that nobody else sees. Okay? He's, he's surveying the situation and He's looking around. And Genesis 1.27 teaches us that God made man in His own image, in His own icon. In His own icon. And so Caesar marks what's His by an icon, by an image, and so does God. God marks what is His with the image of God and man. And so Jesus, in profound wisdom, He turns and He says, render to God what belongs to God. Jesus teaches this. Caesar gets taxes, but God gets you. God gets everything in your life, your entire being. Every ounce of your personality belongs to God. Render to God what is God's. Now this means for us in this room that every single one of us owe 100% total allegiance to this God. 
And think about this. That word render, it's not a gift. You don't give God a gift when you obey Him. You pay Him what He owed, what He is owed, what He is due. He is your God. You are His creature. He is the Creator. And we must obey our Maker. We must render to God what is God's. Okay? God gets you. God gets you. He has Creator rights over your life. You were created to worship and to serve God. You are, listen to this, you are not autonomous. That is the humanism that we grow up in. That we can do whatever we want to do and that we can impose our own standards on ourselves. That is a lie. There is no human being on the planet, including you, that is autonomous. Okay? You are in a creator-creature relationship with God and your job is to render, to pay to God what He is owed, what He is due. Everything in your life is to be worshipped and serving this God. Jesus demands that you serve your Maker. So think about this. If it's a sin to withhold taxes to Caesar, can you even imagine how sinful it is to withhold anything from this God? To withhold anything from Him. To fail to pay Him what He is due. Be unthinkably sinful. Y'all with me? Unthinkably sinful not to give this God what He is due. If you didn't pay taxes to Caesar, He would kill you. If you don't render to God what is God's, He will cast you into eternal fire. This is eternal punishment. The just judgment of God. You see this. This is unthinkably sinful. Now here's the bad news. Here's the bad news. I hate to burst your bubble this morning, but every single one of us have failed to render to God what is God's. You have failed to pay God what He is due. You have not paid the Creator, your Maker, what He is owed. This is the wisdom of Jesus. They come to Him with a question about taxes and He flips it into a gospel conversation. Have you ever met people that are just really gifted evangelists? It's like they can take anything on planet earth and they can turn it into a gospel conversation. Jesus just turned a question about taxes into a gospel conversation about the sinfulness of man. Every time you live your life for yourself, every single time that happens, you steal from God. You steal from Him what He is due, what He is owed. So Jesus, He's got His enemies there and He begins to press them with this question. Render to God what is God's. Mankind does not do this. Mankind does not render to God what is God's. We have all sinned. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's not one on earth. There's not one on planet earth who does good and never sins. We have all sinned against this God. The Bible teaches that this is not okay. This is not okay. This is not an honest mistake that God is going to sweep under the rug. Of, oh, yeah, you've all sinned. This is not okay. God will require a payment for your debt. You have failed to pay God what He is owed and God will require a payment. For this sin debt. Listen to Romans chapter 2 verse 8. All those who are self-seeking. All those who are self-seeking. And do not obey the truth. There will be wrath and fury. That is the New Testament. Don't comfort yourself with these lies that there's not a God of wrath anymore because Jesus came. Every single one who lives for himself, the self-seeking, there will be wrath and there will be fury. Why? Because God will get what He is owed. Okay? God will get what He is owed. There is a payment that must be paid. These men are standing around Jesus. And they're worried about political questions and taxes. But they needed to be worried about how they were going to pay their sin debt to God. This is their mistake. This is what He exposes them to. I want to say that again. They are surrounding Him and they're worried about political questions and taxes. But they needed to be worried about how they were going to pay their sin debt to God. They're worried about Caesar's tax, but they need to be worried about God's judgment. This is what Jesus does. He exposes them and it drives us to this gospel conversation. This fear of judgment should, should make us fling to the gospel of Christ. Okay, You think about this. 
You owe this massive sin debt before God. And Jesus would have you in that moment know that there's only one way that this debt is to be paid. And so He drives us to His Gospel. And this is what we have to see in this passage. Jesus is here to pay what we could not pay. Jesus is here to render to God what is God's. Isn't that awesome? You failed to do it, but He's here to pay it in full, perfectly on your behalf. He's here to render to God what is God's. They're worried about what kind of king He is, setting up this political kingdom, but He's here to make atonement for sin. He's here to render to God what is God's. So we get a beautiful glimpse of Jesus in verse 15. Beautiful glimpse of Christ. In verse 15, He says, Bring me a denarius. If you thought about that long enough, it would hit you that the King of glory just asked for a, for a coin because He didn't have one in His pocket. The King of glory just asked for a coin because He didn't have one in His pocket. Now that ought to cook the human brain. What is the King of glory doing without a coin in His pocket? He's the King of majesty. He's the King of glory. He is born into the world and angels begin to worship this Christ. He owns all things, the cattle on a thousand hills, and He doesn't have a quarter in His pocket. So the question is why? Why is Jesus without a quarter in His pocket? And this is another reminder that He has come as a completely different kind of king. He didn't come to conquer the Romans. He didn't come to set up a political kingdom on the earth. He's coming to make atonement for sin. He's coming to make a way for sinners to enter the kingdom. And so you see Him in humility. You see Him getting low and humbling Himself. And He doesn't even have a quarter in His pocket. And this is good news for sinners. This is good news for those who didn't pay to God what was His. Because Jesus is here and He's suffering and He's humble because He's saving sinners. He's saving us. This is His perfect work. Jesus is the only way to have your sin debt paid before God. So you must make your choice today. You must make your choice. You will either stand before God in the filth of your own works and you will fail to render Him what He was due. Or you will stand before God in the perfect garment of salvation, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. These are your only two choices. So you must make your decision. It's time for you to take your side. Will you stand before God on your own works or will you fall down and follow this Christ? Put your trust in this Jesus. Which will it be? Which will it be? And I want to urge you today, you have to put your trust in this Christ who bore your sins on His cross and was raised from the dead in triumphant victory. You have to. You must. This is the only way to be saved. This is the only way that you will ever render to God what is God's is if you get His obedience and His righteousness. Otherwise, there will be a payment. There will be wrath. There will be fury. So friends, I ask you today, what are you going to do with this king without a quarter in his pocket? The one who was slaughtered for sinners. The one who was raised from the dead. The one who promised salvation to every single person that trusts him. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with this Christ, with this Jesus? Now I know that I'm surrounded by brothers and sisters. You love Christ. You love Jesus. You've repented of your sins and you put your faith in this Christ that died for you. And I know that. And I love to preach to you because you love Jesus. And so I want to take this moment, I want to remind you something about you and about Christ. Christians, I want to remind every single one of you that even after salvation, you are not autonomous. You are not free to go your own way. You are not free to do your own thing. You are not free to rebel and live your own life and do you. You're not free to do that. Okay? You have been created by this Christ and double you are His. Double you are His. You are His by creation and you are His by redemption. And so I want to remind you that the ultimate price was laid down to purchase you. It's called the blood of Christ. This is the blood of the God-man, the Lord Jesus. You do not belong to yourself any longer. You are, the, you are His purchased possession. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. It says this, let this hit you this morning. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. That means you are not your own. Then listen to how this verse finishes. So, because that's true, glorify God with your body. 
A.K.A. render to God what is God's. Give Him what He is due. He owns you by creation, by redemption. So I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage us all around this church. Lord Jesus, in response to who You are and what You've done, we want to render to You what You deserve. And so, how can You live every second of Your life to the glory of this King? How can You lay Your entire life down in service to this King that comes and bleeds and dies for sinners? How can we give Jesus everything? How can we render to God what is God's? I want to encourage you this, to live for yourself every single moment you do it. You steal from the Christ that bled for you. You steal from the Christ that bled and died for you. So I want to encourage the people of God today. I'm speaking to people that have been purchased by Jesus. How can you render to God what is God's? And I have prayed for you, and I'm praying even now that God would do this, that God would show you specific areas in your life that you have withheld from this King that bled for you. Specific areas of your life where you have not rendered to God what is His, what is rightfully His, and that you failed to give it to Him. And so I pray that God would show you that even now, even now, Lord, that you would show us those things in our lives. And I pray that in that moment that the Holy Spirit just burst in your ears with the words of Jesus, render to God what is God's. Render to God what is God's. And so the question is this, how can we lay our entire lives down for this Christ, this worthy one, this one with matchless wisdom? How can we serve Him with our whole hearts, not half-hearted, not lukewarm, white-hot for King Jesus? And what we want at this church, if God wills for you to live a hundred years old, that you would go out in a white-hot flame for this Christ. Not that you would serve Him for just a few years in your youth or in your 30s, but that you would serve Him to the very end and that you would lay your life down in His service as a living sacrifice and render to God what is God's. And render to God what is God's. As we close, I want to I read this quote to you. I want you to meditate on it. And then we're going to go right into a time of prayer. And you tell yourself, is this true? And then you ask God to do this in your life. This is a quote from a poem by C.T. Studd. So with this ringing in your ears, render to God what is God's. I want to read you this. Only one life and it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Say it again. Only one life and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I have died, how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee to the very end of our days going out in white hot worship and service of this Christ. Let's pray. Let's ask God to do this in our midst. Lord, we love You. God, we thank You for Your, for your grace today, for Your glorious Gospel. Lord, we didn't have a chance to pay You what we owed But You came down, Lord, and You saved us. And You made us Your own. And this is a work of grace. We are Your people called by Your name by grace. And we pray, Lord, that You would do Your holy work among us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that You would consume our hearts for Your glory with a passion for Your name. God, we pray that You would drive idols far from us as a local church that's called by Your name. We pray, Lord, that You would take all the right affections and that they would terminate in You. And all the right duties and that they would terminate in You, Lord. And we pray, God, that You would raise up just a church of worshipers. Help us to lay our lives down. Every single corner of our being in service to You, Lord. This is our prayer. In the name of Jesus. Amen.